Okay. Right, guys, I'm going to get started. Um, if you're still out in the atrium getting coffees, if you um, want to come on in, that's absolutely great. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Jeremy. I'm part of the leadership here at Real Life Church. Um, come originally from South Africa, from a little town, well, a city called Port Elizabeth. I call it little, but it's one of the five biggest cities in South Africa, so I should be proud of it. Um, we've got three children. We've been living in the UK now for, for uh, nine years, and we've loved every single moment of it. I need to tell you that um, it hasn't all been fun, it hasn't all been enjoyable, and a lot of it's been really tough, but we've enjoyed every single moment of it, and we know that God's called us here, and I think that's part of the reason why we've been able to enjoy it so much, even when it's been tough. God's called us here, we know he's called us here, and um, when things get difficult, we run back to those promises that he gave us back in South Africa, and we hold on to those, and we say, God, you've sent us here, you're going to empower us, you'll enable us, and you'll give us everything we need for what you've called us to. So that's a little bit about us. Now, I just wanted to dispel some myths um, about preachers. I, I don't know if you realize this, but when you prepare a sermon, there is, there's a fair amount of research that goes into it. Um, I know it seems like preachers know absolutely everything there is to know about the Bible, but it's not true. Okay? It's not true. We love the Bible. We take it very seriously, but we'll never know everything there is to know by ourselves. Number one, the Holy Spirit helps us. He makes the words come alive to us. Number two, there's, there's a heritage, a massive heritage of wonderful theologians who've grappled with the mega themes of the Bible over thousands of years, and they inform our study and then we've got peers, we've got other people that, that preach around the world, and they help us to understand what God is saying to the church today. And then, and then we sit down and we pray and we say, God, will you please show me how your word can be applied to my church family today, right now? So there's a whole lot of research that goes on. There's a whole lot of prayer. There's a whole lot of meditation before we stand up here and we sound authoritative like we know everything. So um, there we go. But in my research, I quickly realized that not many churches preach through this little preamble in Joshua that we're going to look at today. Uh, they kind of get fast-tracked into the action, into the fun, juicy bits. And um, I think Matt's going to be using some of those juicy bits a little bit later in the series. And I can kind of get why they do that. I, they, they kind of treat it as a preamble or a, a a starting point rather than an integral part of, of the narrative. But to do that, I, I believe, is a, a disservice. There's, there's so much that we can learn about Joshua. There's so much that we can learn about Israel and God if we meditate on these words. And ultimately, what happens is we learn about ourselves and we learn about how God wants to work with us. So remember then that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, and for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be made competent, equipped for every good work. So we come to our authority now, the Bible, and we ask God to speak to us through it, to teach us it, to correct us by it, to train us in it, and we ask that he would use it to change our goals, 
and our priorities. So if you've got Joshua open in your Bibles, that's great. Otherwise, they're going to pop up over there. I think my big fat head may be in the way. Um, But if you can read along with me, please do. We're going to be in Joshua 1, verses 10 through to 18. I'm going to read it through, and then we're going to break it down a little bit. Okay. So, and Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers, and shall help them. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving to them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall he be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. When we moved to Birmingham, um, I went looking for a house. Um, some of you will remember those days. I went looking for a house, and we found a beautiful place, um, 61 Warmley Road, and um, we were so happy with it. I felt like that, that weekend I came up for a job interview, um, then I sat down with the uh, the estate agent, and we walked through the house, and I thought, this is absolutely perfect. It's close to the school that we want the kids to go to. It's close to where I need to work. It's close to where the church is. And um, it looked absolutely perfect to us. It was an amazing house, and it blessed us for, for many years. But the honest truth is, within the first few weeks of living in that house, we had a list as long as my arm of things that we would love to have changed. It was cold. It took a fortune to keep the place warm in winter. Um, the wall color was depressing. I don't know. You know, there's that tin of paint that you get. Um, it's, there's one whole aisle dedicated to it in B&Q called Magnolia. Yeah, that was the color of the walls. And it, it looks fine in photographs, but when you switch on a light that isn't bright white, it's kind of boring and a little bit depressing and somber. The kitchen was ridiculously small. There were some serious issues with the plumbing, which I don't really want to get into right now. Um, And the list went on and on and on. Now, because we were renting, there wasn't too much that we could do. Obviously, the plumbing we could sort out, okay? But there wasn't much we could do to the house. And to be honest, within a few months, we'd learned to live with these issues. Um, And eventually, we had, for the most part, forgotten about them. Maybe it was just me. I don't know if Becky totally forgot about them. But I'd forgotten about them, and it was home. Maybe it was, you know... 
over that time, you kind of give up that stuff and you say, fine, home's home, I've got a TV, I've got a kettle, I've got an oven, and I became comfortable. You know, we become comfortable with things that aren't necessarily perfect. I'll tell you a story about another house. It was where I came from in Port Elizabeth. And um, we built it. I mean, not me personally laying every brick, but we had it designed with an architect. I um, project managed the whole thing, and we, we built that house ourselves. And it was another beautiful house, but, but it almost killed us, literally and figuratively. It almost killed us. When um, we first moved in, half the roof, 50% of the roof blew off in a big storm. It blew off the roof and then slid down and landed on our cars at the back of the house, um, at which point we kind of freaked out because we were all in the house at the time. So we uh, went around and had a look at this, uh, got some neighbors to help us lift the roof off of our cars so we could get them out, and we then proceeded to um, kind of evacuate the house as quickly as we could because this huge wind that was blowing was the, the sort of preamble, if you want, of a massive rainstorm. So the whole place was going to be flooded in a matter of hours. So we cleared out of the house. I came back a little bit later and I couldn't find the roof. Um, It had blown away. We found it eventually a few days later in the bush in somebody else's property um, downwind from us. Fortunately, no one got injured in the incident. But yeah, it was traumatic. And um, we had to move out. And we moved out and we lived with my parents. And at that time, Joel was due and he was born when we were living in my parents' house. So you can just imagine how happy Becky was at, at that time. She was overjoyed with, with the situation. Um, after a number of months, we eventually moved back in. And in time, we built onto the house and we had the garden landscaped and we made it just the way we wanted. But at night, when the wind blew... I lay awake, listening intently to that darn roof. It never, ever left me. Every single night when the wind was blowing powerfully, I was worrying about that darn roof. But for Joel and Caitlin, it was home. They knew nothing of the trauma that had come before. They didn't go through the pain of building and then the the stress of having it all ruined and all the additional work that went on since. To them, it was all they knew. It was home, and they were comfortable there. And to this day, if you ask them, they've got fond memories of that house. You see, we get comfortable. Even when things aren't perfect, we get comfortable. It's part of our condition. And um, comfortable can be good. And it's something that we, we treasure in our society. But um, it can also stop you from moving forward with what God's called you to do. And this is the the struggle here with Israel. It could keep Israel from entering the promised land. So when Moses, I'm just going to recap quickly what's happened. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, you need to remember that they were a ragtag group of individuals. They were a very loosely assembled bunch of slaves with very little strength in their, their corporate identity. They weren't a nation as we'd imagine a nation to be. And they were fleeing for, for their lives from an Egyptian army that was chasing them down in the desert. And um, God delivers them miraculously by by parting the Red Sea, but they're running, they're panicking, running through the Red Sea, and he saves them by then dropping the Red Sea down on the Egyptian army. You know, just just remember these things. They were led by a pillar of fire at night, a pillar of smoke by day. Their sandals didn't wear out the whole time they were in the desert. 
God fed them with manna from heaven and with quails. Moses um, caused water to come from a rock when they were thirsty. He spoke face to face with God. When he came down the mountain, we heard his face was glowing so much that people felt uncomfortable in his presence. They had to put a covering over him so that they could be with him. Um, He was given the law of God while they were in the desert. They were becoming a nation. They were being formed into something that was far more significant than they were when they were running out of Egypt. An amazing time. But the people grumbled. They moaned. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to make their own idols. They complained about God's provision. They didn't like manna every day, you know. Um, But they grumbled a lot. And the result of this was that God said to them, none of you are going to enter the promised land. And that's what happened. A whole generation passed away. They died in the wilderness. And it was left to a new generation to enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. But what we've got to remember is, the Israel that Joshua was leading into the promised land had only known the wilderness That was their home. It was where they were comfortable. It may not be perfect, but it's what they know. So you see, the danger for us is when we read Joshua, we imagine that Israel is just busting to get out of the wilderness and into the promised land. But the reality is that there's a real likelihood for Joshua that when he brings this message to to Israel, that they will be reticent, that they'd rather just stick around um, where they know. And, and that challenge is particular for two and a half tribes of Israel, which we'll get into in a moment. So here, you know, we've got to remember what God has already said to Joshua, that um, Stu has mentioned to us. God's assured Joshua that he will be faithful to his word and that Joshua needs to be bold and courageous in doing what is right according to the word, rather do what is most popular with the people. This was a great test of Joshua's leadership. Will he stand true in God's word, stand firm and do what God has commanded, or will he capitulate? Will he do what's easiest, what's most popular, and often what we see in politics today? The reason I think we don't see very clear vision from our leaders today is because they have too many polls and they want to know what's most popular with the people. And so they can't hear clearly what the right thing to do is. They listen to what is the most popular thing to do. But Joshua stands firm. He does what God has commanded. And the trick now is, will he be able to convince Israel to do what God has commanded and do something that makes them uncomfortable again? So let's get back into the text then. Let's look at verse 10 through to 11. Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Stu mentioned to us that uh, a lot of the, the word that God used with Joshua was not military. And that theme continues here. If um, even this word officers, you may think these are military officers, but they're not. These are are civil officers. They're a a part of a system that was put in place 
by Moses on the advice of his uh, father-in-law Jethro a long time ago when um, they started in the Exodus and Moses was finding it really difficult to manage Israel and all of their complaints and issues. So Jethro said, well, why don't you just um, delegate specific men to manage smaller groups of people in a civil way. But these guys were, they were, they were really important. They, were, they had religious duties. They had uh, judicial duties. And if we read Numbers 11, verse 16 to 17, it says that they weren't just administrative, but that the Spirit of the Lord was on them. So they were spiritually strong in the house of Israel, and they were prominent leaders. Um, and the system worked really well. I mean, if you imagine... Israel at this point is possibly one million strong. So to call a summit and to get them to move over the Jordan in three days would have been quite tricky. But Joshua can just say to his officers, you guys, you need to go and speak to Israel and tell them to get their house in order because we're about to move over the Jordan. And they're given this job of delivering his command It wasn't a suggestion, it was a command, a command given from God to Joshua and now from Joshua down to these officers and to the people. And there again we see it's a command that's not military. They're not saying, okay, you've got to prepare your your weapons, you've got to get your your, um, fighting men in, in order. Really what they're saying is pack up your house, make sure you've got enough food. This is, again, we, we're, not, we're not going to war, we're immigrating, we're moving. And the implication is really that, that the promise that God has given is you've inherited this land. It's yours already. All you're going to go and do is possess it. You're just going to move over the Jordan and possess what I've already given you. My promise is yes and amen. You will get it. So I just wanted to highlight two words for you here. These, these are important concepts which you're going to see throughout Joshua, and they're not sort of coincidental. Just to say it's more than semantics that there's two Hebrew words used for inherit and possess. They're very different, and they're used very intentionally. So God has promised them, you will inherit this land, but you have to go and possess it to appropriate that inheritance. And it's the same for us if we think about the gospel message. You are given the promise of eternal life, but you need to respond. You need to take possession of that promise. So we'll hear about that often. It's integral to the, the theology of Joshua. Let's move on to verses 12 through to 15. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the the land that the Lord has given to them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. Now, Joshua Joshua gives his personal attention to um, two and a half tribes in particular. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. 
This is where he expects the most resistance to moving on. Um, and it shows strong leadership from, from him. He sends his officers out to, to talk to the rest of Israel. But to the, th- the two and a half tribes that he thinks he's going to get resistance from, he goes personally. He talks to them directly. And he doesn't appeal to their strength. He doesn't say to them, well, you know what, guys, without you, Israel aren't going to inherit the land and you're going to cause them all to, to fail. He doesn't do any of that. He reminds them of their promise to Moses. And he reminds them of the promise of the Word of God. So he essentially appeals to the Word of God in getting them on board. The question I suppose is, some of you may be asking, well, what makes these two and a half tribes different? Why are they different from the rest? Um, And the answer is back in Numbers. If you go and look at Numbers 32 verses 1 to 42, um, what happened is Israel came across some aggressive kings, uh, Sion and Og, and they beat them in battle. So these two and a half tribes liked the look of the land where they were and made a request of Moses. They asked if they could forsake their inheritance, the other side of the Jordan, in return for the land that they were already on. And obviously Moses was a little bit concerned that um, what would happen is that they would get comfortable, that they'd have their land, and then they'd forget that they have an obligation to the rest of Israel to go and take the land that they were to possess. Um, They realize this and they say to them, they say to Moses um, that, that they will send all of the able men to fight with the rest of Israel if they were given the land that they're on now. So Moses agrees to this. And then he tells Joshua about that agreement. And now Joshua knowing about the agreement, has to go and make sure that they haven't forgotten their side of the deal and that they are going to take up their obligations. So that's what's happening there. So the instruction is quite simple. He's telling them that their fighting men, their men of valor, are to fight alongside their brothers across the Jordan until such time as each tribe is settled and have a place to call home. And only then can they return to their land that they call home. So what's yeah? So that's that's really important to note, and I'm going to come back to it in a little while. But through verse 16 and 18, you've got a section which records the whole response of Israel to this command that Joshua is um, giving. It's not just the response of the Transjordanian tribes, and they answered Joshua, "All that you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go." Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Just as, sorry, only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall he be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So the response is a resounding vote of loyalty and obedience to Joshua. And it it must have been encouraging to this new leader who who wasn't yet worthy of being called a servant of the Lord like Moses was. Their words are intended to give Joshua an assurance that he can rely on the people to do what God commands, even at the pain of death. And they say that they'll obey him in the same way that they obeyed Moses. And for about 10 seconds, he was probably happy with that until he remembered how they obeyed Moses. Not very well. 
I mean, if you read Exodus, the one thing that stands out is that they did a, a shocking job of obeying Moses. And if it is to be the same for Joshua, there's no real assurance in the will of the people. They'll probably be as fickle as they always have been. And we'll see later that um, they don't fully follow through on their obligations under Joshua either. There's a tension that's introduced that will simmer underneath the narrative of this whole book. There's a tension between their words and their actions, what they say they'll do and what they do do. And um, what it really reinforces for me, and it should reinforce for you, is that Joshua's confidence needs to be in the Lord's presence, not the people's obedience. That is where success will be found. And the people say as much. In their words, they say, only may God be with you. I don't want to get into um, the theological debate around that phrase, but um, if you read it in the original, it sounds like only God will be with you. And then the section ends with this reinforcing phrase that Joshua is to be strong and courageous. This is the fourth time that this phrase is used before we start in the the narrative proper. Um, First three times from God to Joshua, remember, not, not in terms of be tough and go out and fight, but be strong and courageous in the word of God. Be strong and courageous in your faithfulness to what I have called you to do um, in the midst of this great people that you know to be disobedient and fickle and can be quite difficult to lead. And this, the, the, the fourth time, by the people to Joshua. So the successful taking of the promised land depends on two things. We've spoken a bit about God's presence over the last two weeks and now, and it depends on Israel's unity. And I just want to say to you guys today that it's the same today. This isn't an Old Testament thing. We, we look at this and we say, okay, well, this translates now because we're through the cross and uh, God works with us differently because we're the church. Many people will say something like that. They'll say that it, um, us taking the promised land is completely dependent on God, especially as we live under grace now. And what they almost say is, is as though um, our response to God in what he instructs us to do bears little consequence on our success. But the truth is that the ordained response of a people who've been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, who've, who've been changed from enemies of God and have become his children, the ordained response of a people like that is to desire to obey his instructions and to be with his people. If you're saved, if you're a child of God, you have an inbuilt desire to obey him. And when you disobey him, it hurts. It's horrible. It pains you. And you, you, you turn to him as quickly as you can. There's a desire to be with his people that the Holy Spirit puts inside of you. God's promises here in Joshua and God's promises throughout time are to his people as a group. What I really mean by that is, is that Israel would possess the land. That is absolutely 100% certain. But individuals who disobey or who sin would still bear the consequences of that. And we're going to see a little bit of that later in the narrative. They still bear the consequences of their sin. And God still delivers on his promise. Israel still gets the promised land. 
See, the taking of the promised land today, as it was then, is contingent on God's presence and the church's unity. Joshua goes to those two and a half tribes. He goes to the people who are most comfortable. And he tells them that God commands them to be uncomfortable, to help their brothers. He emphasizes a strong sense of unity and family that I think for the most part is missing in the modern Western church. The Bible calls us a family. But here's how we think of as a family. We want a family to function in certain ways based on our expectations. And if it doesn't, then we justify our refusal to love the family. We justify our refusal to serve the family, to fight with the family, especially when it costs us something. There's a great temptation to concern ourselves only with our allotment, our house, our estate, our own inheritance, our own nuclear family, and our own security to not get involved And that is the temptation that those two and a half tribes must fight. Throughout Joshua, there is always a concern for all of Israel. And it's a concern that we should have for our own church. It's a concern we should have for the church in Birmingham and in the United Kingdom and and for the church as a whole worldwide. It should raise the question, how does my presence or lack thereof, impact the body? How do my contributions grow or my selfishness hinder the community? How does my sin impact more than just me? In the New Testament, the apostles speak of the church in pretty much the same way. They say we're one people. Ephesians 2 verse 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. They say that we need each other, Galatians 2 verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says that we all have a unique role, Ephesians 4 verses 15 to 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, the mission is less, it's incomplete, and it's inefficient without you. We are less without you. Now, real life, I think we're pretty good at this. For the most part, I think we like each other. I think we engage in our community pretty well. We donate to the food bank. We run alpha courses. We have men's and women's events. We have loads of children's events. And the majority of us are a part of Life Group. But if I asked you to get your house in order... Because in three days, you'll be moving to China. 
God has called you, what would you say? <laughs> yes, <laughs> maybe. I don't think many of us will be going to China, sorry, just to uh, take a deep breath. But the challenge is this. If we're not willing to move to the other side of the world and face multiple unknown challenges that we haven't been able to measure out if God asks us to, what makes us think that we're going to say yes to anything he asks of us? That is what Joshua commanded to Israel. And they said yes. Three days. Up and out of here. And we could stand back and comment on how often they messed up previously and how often they're going to mess up in the future and how disobedient they were while they were doing all of that. But they said yes. They didn't say, well, Josh, I'll need to pray about that one. Or, you know, I don't believe that the God I serve would make me uncomfortable. They said yes. Real life church is a miracle. I know Stu will acknowledge that. It's a miracle. God has grown us into a, a beautiful community of believers. God has um, made us rich. We have energy. We have life. But I just don't think this is it. You see, I think unity is more than just being with people that you like being around. It's so much more than that. We aren't united just because we like each other. We are united behind God's mission, behind his calling. And when we respond with a yes, even if it causes us great discomfort, that's unity. And I just don't think this is it. Meeting in this school, 180-odd people, loads of kids, loads of young adults, loads of parents, loads of grandparents. We've got it all. We've got the cross-generation thing going. We've got children's ministry. We're lively. We've got loads of men that love God. I dare you to go and find that in the many churches in the UK now. It's great. It's awesome. It's brilliant, but it's comfortable. And this isn't the promised land. We're called to be a large church, an influential church, and a reproducing church. We could say we've got there, but by golly, I'm not sure we're large or reproducing yet. And we certainly are influential beyond our size, but I think there's so much more to come. So much more to come. My fear is that we become comfortable here. This is nice. Crossing the Jordan sounds like hard work. Taking fortified cities sounds dangerous and scary. We live in Sutton Coldfield. It's nice. Taking some parts of our city sounds scary. We've got a lot of work to do, but I don't think we're done yet. So that's the challenge. But God said to Joshua, what did he say? Three times, be strong and courageous. And he's saying to us today, Real Life Church, be strong and courageous. I've called you to much more than this, but it is going to be uncomfortable. You'll need to rely on my presence, and you all need to get together on this. We need to be one on this. I've said that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I've promised to equip you for what I've called you to do. 
Now, all I want to know from you is, are you in? Are are you in? Are you in? (laughs) A little bit better. I want a little bit more exuberance in a moment. Guys, um, worship team, if you can come and join me. Um, By way of response, if if that was a yes, I don't want you to lie. I mean, if you're feeling like, no, I'm not really in, then then tell me so. But um, if you are in, by way of response, I'd like us to read out the Great Commission together, and then I'll pray for us. But I need to um, bring some, some words that I felt challenged me last night and what this means for some of us as individuals. What are going to be the things that challenge us? I can't speak about everything, but some of you are going to need to get back into your Bibles. You found it boring. You found it irrelevant. You found it confusing. But it's going to take discipline and prayer. And you're going to need to get away from all of those lame excuses you use about why you don't read it. I know the Bible can be tough at times. But get over it now. Come on. There's a million different ways that you can access the Bible. You don't have to read it as a book. There's audio versions of it as well. I don't have the time. Well, that's not true. I know you've got the time. You're just using that time in a different way. Some of you are going to need to get back into reading the Bible. Some of you are going to need to get back into life groups. You've struggled to stay connected with family. You're going to struggle even more if you only come on a Sunday, especially when we get growing. You need to stay connected to your family. It may be uncomfortable and inconvenient for some of you, but you need to make it a priority. Some of you need to get back to being vulnerable and accountable again. You've been hurt. You're hiding away because you feel like you're a failure. And it's, it's going to hurt to do that. But you need to make sure that you're connected. You're going to feel afraid, but still you need to push in and make sure that you're vulnerable and accountable. Some of you still need to become part of the family. God is in the adoption business. Some of you love coming here every Sunday and even going to life group, but you're still not part of the family. And God wants to call you in and say, you're not an outsider. I want you to be part of this family. And so we're going to pray for you tonight, today. So let us say together then. And Jesus came and said to them, come on guys, say it together. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is Christ's command to you, not his suggestion, his command. So, Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that um, as we look at the story of Joshua, we remember that you are a better Joshua. As he came with the command of God to move over the Jordan, we know that you come with a command to us to go into all the world and make disciples of all people, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You promise to be with us to the end of the age, and you say that you will return when the harvest is fully brought in. And so, Lord, we stand. Guys, can we stand? We stand as as a local church, as real-life church, with a specific vision, a specific mission that you've given us. But ultimately, Lord, we know that our calling is to go and make disciples and to bring in the promised land by letting them know about you, our Savior and our King. And Lord, together we say yes. That is what we're about, and we are not going to be be, uh, fooled into comfort because of the success that we've experienced over the last few months. Lord, we want to thank you for the blessing of Real Life Church. We want to thank you for a family that is close, that means so much to so many people. We want to thank you for the joy that is found in this place and in life groups. But Holy Spirit, provoke us. Don't ever let us sit down and become comfortable in this place because we know that you have so much more for us to do. Thank you, Lord. Amen.